On a dark desert night. A small voice calls. Sister, will you tell us a tale? Jinn, Magians, Sultans, Buried Treasure. We're going to explore what they say about their cultures then and why they captivate us now. Light your lamp and pour some tea while we retell you a thing. Welcome back to the podcast. It's great to be here again with you after a pretty great winter break. The last episode we had was our Yule special, a supersized episode of The Snow Queen, which I hope you enjoyed and found some time to listen to over the holidays because it was (laughs) quite the long one. (laughs) So now we're kicking it off into the new year, 2021, with a new project that we wanted to do. Last year, we did a bit of the lead up to Beauty and the Beast, which was kind of an ongoing project that we had. And this year, we've got a super exciting topic that we're going to get into. And we've been teasing it since what we started. Uh, It was almost when we started the Beauty and the Beast project, because I think we've been teasing the Thousand and One Nights since I told the first half of Hassan of Basra. Yeah, which was part of the Beauty and the Beast buildup. So. Which I'm really excited about because I, um, when I was in high school, I found a copy of A Thousand and One Nights, like in a box of books that I think I got from my grandparents or something like that. And the copy that I had was super old, not like as old as lots of the stuff that we talk about in the podcast, but it was published in like 1912. So it was like one of the oldest books that I'd ever seen and held with my own hands. So that made me like really interested. I was like, oh my gosh, what is this old book? And then I saw that it was A Thousand One Nights and I started reading and I read the whole thing and I was just like so entranced by it. But it was like a pretty skinny book, you know, like a normal size book. It probably had maybe 250 pages. And then you see like the full collection of the Thousand One Nights, like the one that you have where it's like three volumes that are like a thousand pages each. You're like, wow, I was reading a very abridged version. <laughs> but, but I just remember loving it because, again, it was a bunch of stories that I really hadn't heard before. I felt like I learned a lot about a culture that I didn't have a lot of experience with. So I think it's going to be really interesting for our listeners who may or may not have any experience with Thousand One Nights. And I love that you've started by telling that like story about like you being like kind of like first interested and like exposed to that story. Cause I feel like that like mirrors a lot of people's like stumbling upon the tales or like they, they hear about it and there's like so much like kind of like build up and lore, but it also yeah. seems really daunting. Cause it is, I mean, if, if you are like, I want to read all of the tales first, you have to figure out like, you know, what, translation you're gonna read first what's like what's considered the like best translation and that varies by what language you speak (laughs) yeah and I remember too when I was reading it because I remember it was like a thousand and one nights and when you start reading it you get kind of the frame story which is about Scheherazade and how she has to tell like a different story every single night and you start reading the story of the first night and you realize oh my gosh these are not short stories it was like, there's going to be a thousand and one of these things. I was like, how is there going to fit that many in this tiny 250 page book? Spoiler alert. There's not really a thousand and one of them, first of all. And also second spoiler, it did not fit all of the ones that are actually there into that one little book. But it usually, yeah, usually like any collection like that, it at least gives you some kind of 
overview of some of like the highlights. And we'll actually, before we like get into starting like the tale, I do want to talk about, yeah, some of the like issues that go into like finding a translation and what might be missing from ones that are given to like children or like are like just <laughs> made available because the history of the knights is like a tale like within itself of how we come to hold like a set of the tales so normally within like an episode I'll tell people what kind of books I'm using and stuff but I just right off the top want to make sure that everyone knows what books are probably the ones I'm going to be referencing the most. So I have been reading Stranger Magic by Marina Warner. And I recently (laughs) heard somebody describe Marina Warner as the queen of folklore knowledge. And it was like, oh, okay. Great title. Yeah, I know. I'm like, that's a really nice honorific. Um, So yeah, so she wrote Stranger Magic And that includes some of the tales and then like essays by her that kind of give like more detail and background about certain elements of the inside the stories. And in her book, in the introduction, she referenced that people should have a copy of the Arabian nights, a companion by Robert Irwin that has zero of the tales inside of it. But it is written by Robert Irwin to be read kind of alongside of the Arabian Nights to give you more of like an understanding of where the tales came from and just like different background information on some of like the tale types and yeah, basically how the Thousand and One Nights as we know them like came to be. So I'm going to be referencing him a lot as we do this series. And then also the three volume set. It's a three volume set of the Arabian Nights Tales of 1001 Nights put out by Penguin Classics. And so volumes one through three. And those also include the orphan tales, which I will explain what those are. (laughs) (laughs) in a moment you will be familiar with them so those are that's my reference material library and i absolutely 100 percent recommend that people who are interested (laughs) in this topic go out and like get those books read them borrow them from your library whatever um because like as much fun as we're going to have like doing this like series there is so much to know and to cover. And Jeff and I definitely are not planning on doing an episode for each, (laughs) each (laughs) tale. That would be like just a podcast in and of itself. Yeah. (laughs) It's like, that's, that sounds like a really great project for someone else. (laughs) (laughs) Some like folklore scholar getting paid by a university. That that sounds like a really great podcast idea that is free for them to have. Um, 
So people who do want like to do their own dive, like that, that, that's my kind of starting list of like, you know, where to start, where to go from there. Um, oh, and I also have a recommendation for people who don't want to have a super deep dive, but want to have some kind of understanding of the stories. National Geographic actually has a book, Tales from the Arabian Nights, Stories of Adventure, Magic, Love, and Betrayal. And it's gorgeously illustrated, too. It's written by Donna Jo Napoli. So that's kind of a little baseline. So I want to start off explaining, like, the history of the translation of The Thousand and One Nights by quoting Robert Irwin when he says... Only a halfwit or a liar would claim that it was possible to produce a complete and faithful word-for-word translation of the Knights. Point blank. <laughs> so I'm about to make that bold claim myself. <laughs> <laughs> because I am a halfwit and a liar. Um, so basically, because people will ask, oh, what's the best translation to get? And even yeah. inside of the introduction to the Penguin Classics um, that I have, The person who, because anybody who undertakes that project, they are doing it for years. They, like, it is truly a monumental feat to put out a translation of the Knights, which is actually why so many people who have the capability don't. (laughs) That they're like, I am fully capable of translating this, like, to a degree, you know, of success, but I don't want to. And yeah. that's that's fair enough. But even he in it when the translator for this volume, who was Malcolm C. Leons, he said as he was working on getting close to putting out this translation, a translation came out in French and then another one in German that he was like, "Ooh, these could have helped me. <laughs> translate his copy. Right. And so he was like, those are excellent. So yeah, (laughs) there are different translations that people might like better in French or German. That's actually Marina Warner. She said that her favorite version was the most recent French version that came out in 2005. And I was like, well, must be nice to be able to speak French (laughs) Marina. I know. My poor French teacher in high school, he tried. He tried so hard. If you had only if you had only applied yourself in middle school, you too could read the superior French translation. Je suis désolé, Monsieur Masson. <laughs> I'm glad that's the only French I learned. Just kidding. I also learned je suis facile means I am easy. It's an important French phrase to know. Yep. That was the first thing I said in my French class that made my French teacher realize that he could not help me. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Um, so to go along with that quote by Robert Irwin, where he says, like, only a halfwit and a liar would claim it's possible. (laughs) There are a lot of problems in trying to get a complete and full translation. The biggest problem is that. There is no complete original transcript that has the tale. Mm. Also, no one can agree on which stories are part of and which ones might not be part of 
the Thousand and One Nights because stories were added or dropped or moved and they have no idea. There is no chronological order of how everything came to be. So there are some scholars that argue that when these stories were originally framed and put together, the tales that were included were all the ones that were to slowly win the king's uh, heart over to Shahrazad. And so those are like the original stories. And they'll pinpoint which ones they think went with that original narrative. But there is also more likelihood that these stories weren't put together the way that you would put together like a novel, because that's that's kind of what that argument is, is that like all of these stories serve this like greater narrative purpose of winning over the heart of this man. Yeah. But people are like, no, more than likely, these were just trash gutter stories that were gathered up and just put into this like framed narrative to stretch out the nights. Yeah. And so there's an ongoing debate about just how this was like built up. There are about, there's four main uh, groups of tales that are the kind of the oldest remaining written down versions. But of those four, they, they each are missing some stuff. They don't all quite line up together. Mm hmm. And then some of them are like only half finished. Like the, the, they'll just leave off in the middle of a story. Oh, weird. And so anytime somebody is trying to make like a complete version, they're, they have to use the multiple different ones of like the four. Right. All the different sources. And then what has also happened is when they, sometimes a country will fill in some stories from like a French version because they're like, Oh, this seems to have kind of a complete story. So I'm going to use this French version's complete story, but then they're not even using like a middle Eastern language text. Right. So when we're talking about these like old collections of tales and old things, is there any kind of idea about how old these tales actually are? Like any kind of like, date range. I'm just trying to like get my mind in like the headspace of the time and the place that these stories are being told. Yes. So (laughs) that is an excellent question and it has no answers. (laughs) Yeah. No, it like, it's an, it's an amazing question and it's super, super fascinating. And that again, I'll do a plug for the Arabian nights, a companion because Basically, what you'll find out when you're like reading about it is that each individual tale will have a similar tale type. And some of those tale types are written down not in like a framed narrative or inside of a different collection of books that are very like old, like 8th century, like old or even older Mm -hmm. and then other stories they really can't find anything leading back that far but the framed narrative itself it's fascinating because 
there are a lot of mentions of there being a story framed the same way that the Thousand One Nights as we know them are framed going back to like the 8th century. Wow. So a man who lived in 896 named Al-Mazudi, he wrote a like a kind of a history of things. <laughs> it was called Meadows of Gold. That's obviously the English title of it, yeah. uh, Meadows of Gold. But inside that book, he digressed on talking about like the subject of stories themselves. And he wrote, and this is a quote, there are collections of stories which have been passed on to us, translated from the Persian, Hindu, and Greek languages. We have discussed how these were composed the Arabic translation of Alf Kuraafi, A Thousand Entertaining Tales. This book is generally referred to as A Thousand Nights. It is the story of a king, a vizier, the daughter of the vizier, and the slave of the latter. These last two are called Shaharazad and Dunazad. There are also similar works such as the Book of Ferenz and Simas, which contains anecdotes about the kings of India and their viziers. There is also the book of Sinbad and other collections of the same type, end quote. So this guy was writing wow. about that. He wrote that down. In 800 AD. Yeah. Wow. And so it really is like, you know, he's naming names that we know today. Yeah. And it's like, yeah, the titles were slightly different. A Thousand Entertaining Tales or A Thousand Nights. But what the the framing that he described, yeah, in 800 AD was is like what what we recognize today, and it's kind of crazy too because the way that he's talking about it sounds kind of like the way that we're talking about it too, in the sense that there are these collections of tales that we're all familiar with that go way way back, and we all know these tales and they've been collected for a long time, and he's saying that like. Yeah, because he wasn't he wasn't retelling. In AD. Yeah, he wasn't yeah. retelling them. He was just like, oh yeah, and like casually mentioned them. So one of the problems why it's hard to nail down like how old these stories are is because they were basically seen as low trash stories. Yeah. Which I find so fascinating because that is the exact same way that folk tales and fairy tales were viewed like in Europe. Yeah. Where they were seen as like, oh, this is like garbage that only like poor people and idle women find entertaining. Uh-huh. Even in like in Paris and Europe, when these stories were, you know, being translated, they weren't highly thought of either. And so it's interesting that. Um, you know, people in the Middle East, they didn't think very highly of these stories because they were like, these are just common stories. And some of them are very vulgar. <laughs> and so th the Middle East was full of art creators, people who either were writing passionate, like poetry, like beautiful, <laughs> just they were creating lots of like highbrow, very beautiful academically lovely work. And they were pretty frustrated that 
you know, basically white people had come in and been like, these stories are fascinating. We want to translate this. Right. right. As an example of like what is in the Middle East entertainment wise. And they were like, no, we have made beautiful things. We have created such beautiful like literary art and you're taking our garbage (laughs) to like to represent us, which, yeah. I feel like that's a completely founded worry, but I also value people recording folk tales. But these folk tales weren't necessarily being recorded with like an an academic rigor that I would uh, appreciate now. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. But it is interesting how like how people view their own folk tales that like Europeans viewed European folk tales as like low level garbage entertainment and then there are people who found value in the thousand one nights and were like oh we should bring that like people will find that fascinating and very very interesting and i'll make them think that they're very cultured to read these stories yeah and people in the middle east were like no the play the people in the like countries and regions of origin are like these are the garbage stories. What is wrong with you? Yeah, please give us back. Yeah, our that garbage. is really interesting. And I and I kind of think that that's one of the things that makes them so interesting is that they are so like considered like vulgar and common, and that they don't have like literature. They haven't been like poured over and edited and like really like crafted and mastered into this thing. Like I feel like from our perspective and the thing that we like to do where we're like exploring cultures through these tales and these stories, I feel like you get the experience of like common people in there and you get kind of like a more broad sense of, of the culture surrounding it because there wasn't one individual whose viewpoint it's being viewed through. You know what I'm, what I'm trying to get at? Absolutely. Yes. Because it is like, it's interesting to look at how, People lived. I mean, that's what I find fascinating about folklore. That's why folklorists do what they do, because they want to peek into what life was like for real people. And a way to do that, to get a general idea of that, is to, like, read these, like, folk stories that basically have been, like, sifted through so many people that what you are left with in the stories is is kind of like a unified message that people in the society can like agree on. Yeah. And the way that you get that is by looking at these like folk tales that have traveled through, not by the kind of like the scholarly work of one artist. Because yeah. with one artist you might you do get a sense of the time frame in which they were writing, but you get a lot of them. Inside of the writing as well. And that happens less in like the the folklore that's gone through so many people. So a quote that I have from Stranger Magic by Marina Warner. She says, the nights continued to be considered popular trash written in an impure Arabic beneath the attention of proper literati. And so because it was undervalued like that... We have problems finding it today, but because it was recorded like that, we also get a lot of the the people of like the the culture and like what you were talking about of like everyday people, not not the scholars or even like the royalty, but actual just like everyday people. So it's like. 
it makes it confusing and hard to pinpoint stuff, but also at the same time, it makes it very important to look at now. Yeah. Yeah, that is interesting. That kind of like dichotomy it kind of reminds me too of how like the first issue that like Superman appeared in is super valuable because it's super rare because when it came out, people were like, this is children's trash and garbage and no one cares about this. So no one kept it. Tons of people bought it and had it and then they threw it away. But then now that it's become like ingrained in the culture, people are going back to get it. So it's like something can't be rare and valuable unless it was like undervalued (laughs) before in some ways. (laughs) But, and it goes on to the, to my greater question too. Like it, you answered my question really well in a sense, not by answering it because you couldn't, but by yeah. explaining the way that my mindset was wrong. Cause my mindset was like, I'm thinking of it along the lines of a lot of the stuff that we've been talking about, like Grimm's, you know, like the Grimm's fairy tales were a collection of stories that were recorded in a certain place at a certain time all together by this group of people. So it's like this representative sample of these stories from a region at a time, all compiled at once. Whereas these stories have been around for so long and they were so undervalued, like you said. People didn't care to write them down. They just kept telling them over and over. So these stories have evolved. And you even said, too, in the different collections, some of these collections that they have that they're basing the written things down on that we have now are from different time periods. Like. It just really makes sense. It's like, I need to get my head in a different space to understand what this actually is. It was never one big collection that was a sample from one place, one time recorded, you know, at once. It was pieced together from tons of different authors, tons of different places at vastly different times. And that's why... You know, it's so hard to even figure out what is the, what is the Thousand One Nights? When was it? Because it is a lot of different things that people can't agree on. And it was at a lot of different times and a lot of different places that people can't agree on either. Even to the point of like scholars having to look at different stories, like individual stories. And they'll say, okay, so this story, there are older versions that we have dating back to like the Panchatantra. And so it's like, we don't think that that story went from the Knights to being in Sanskrit in the Panchatantra. We think that the story must have come to somewhere in Iraq, Iran, written down, or not even yet written down, but starting to be talked about. But that's just one tale is like, oh, we can find that there. And then you have, so inside of Chaucer's Canterbury Tales and inside of Shakespeare, there are some references to themes of stories that echo stories, individual stories inside the Thousand and One Nights, except that there is no evidence of there ever being those stories written down in a language that would be in Europe. Yeah. So the stories must have traveled with the people, which is funny when you think about the Canterbury Tales and Chaucer, because it's people who are going on this like religious pilgrimage and like retelling a story on their way there, because they actually think that like the reason why the tales include so many references to world religions is because of 
people who are going on pilgrimages and telling stories. Yeah. Like Chaucer set up. Yeah, that's so funny. But so there's all with these individual tale types being all over the place. It's very, very confusing as to how each individual tale got to be in the Thousand and One Nights. Right. If if the Thousand and One Nights existed very, very early, or if it wasn't until later that they were put inside the frame narrative of the Thousand and One Nights. Right. So yeah, it is like it's <laughs> it's not it's not a situation because actually it has not been until like very recently that we have even started putting the knights together in a way that is even remotely similar to like the Grimm's brothers. Because even when you had people who are trying to compile the stories, there's a lot of poetry that is inside of the Thousand and One Nights that it does not add to the action within the story. It's usually just a pause and poetry or verses from scripture, and then they go back into the action. And so a lot of the times when it was being translated or written down, they just cut out all of that. And so the nights were always heavily edited. Mm -hmm. And so it really wasn't like a situation like the Grimm's brothers where it was like, for the most part, oh, this is what like we were told, or this is what was written down and given to us. And this is what we're putting in here. It was very, very, very doctored. One of the earliest translations that became like the most widely disseminated was written in French. And there were like European sensibilities that did not appreciate some of the content of like, you know, these like trash tales. I have a quote from Stranger Magic where uh, Marina Warner says, Galand, who is the, um, the translator cleans up the bathing scenes and includes neither of the last two stories in his translations and avoids explicit allusions to homosexuality. So he was going through cutting out a lot of the stuff that he deemed inappropriate. And when it was being translated into English, the people who were translating it could not translate it and put it in a bookstore. They couldn't sell it in a bookstore because it was considered pornographic. Yeah. And so they actually had to translate it through a society. So in 1877, a man by the name of John Payne, he and a circle of his friends set up the Villon Society. And what that was, was basically, it was a a subscription society, which meant that it wasn't open to the general public. So they weren't putting out a book that was open to the general public. It was by subscription. So people had to pay to be part of it mm-hmm. in the Arabian nights. A companion says it was the Valon society, which was to publish Payne's translation of the nights. Not only did the society help fund the publication, it also afforded some measure of protection for Payne against charges of obscenity as it could be pleaded that the society's publications were for subscribing members only. In the case of Payne's translation of the Knights, only 500 copies were printed, and all 500 were speedily taken up. (laughs) (laughs) People were like, ooh, I want some of that. And the Knights are, like, there's a lot of sexual content 
inside of them, as we'll see when we finally get to the story portion of today's episode. (laughs) And so there were like, there were so many obstacles towards turning this into books that people could read. I'm so glad that like people saw value in the stories enough so that they were like, uh, an effort needs to be made, even though the effort may or may not have uh, made things more tangled and complicated. Because in the modern Middle East, with certain exceptions, the Knights is not regarded by Arab intellectuals as literature at all. Another thing that made it hard for there to be a good translation of the Knights is the fact that Arab poets and Arab like writers and storytellers love punning and wordplay. And so when people are making a translation of the Knights, they realize that as they are translating it, they have to kind of choose one or the other. Do they want to make sense or do they want to include people in on the joke? Yeah. And it's, and they usually end up losing the pun or the wordplay for the sake of the story making sense. Right. And so it is like, there's always something lost by like going into like a different uh, translation. That's one of the things they talked about. I read a really good article about uh, Harry Potter and like the trouble of translating Harry Potter into different languages because JK Rowling does a ton of that in Harry Potter too. Like the name Hogwarts, you know, even that is like kind of like wordplay or like, Diagon yeah. Alley being di- diagonally, you know, like how do you translate that in a way that makes sense and conveys the the cleverness? Because it's like there's the word for diagonally is probably not going to sound, you know, like similar to whatever you'd want to say in whatever other language. You know, it's like yeah, they would just like whatever sentence they plugged it into, they would say diagonally because. They're like, that, oh, there's no, there's no equivalent. Yeah, and that's what it's called. And that's the same thing. Like I know in like Japanese, yeah. Hogwarts is called Hogwarts. You know, like they just yeah. use the English word, which, unless you know English, doesn't have any connotation or whatever at all. So, anyway. So one of the translators who we should probably spend the most time talking about is Antoine Galland. It's probably Galland. Galland. Galon. He's French. Antoine Galon. Maybe. We'll see when people start writing in and telling me that I mispronounce <laughs> everything and I'm an idiot. It's okay. I know. So, a quick little quote from the Arabian Nights of Companion. Antoine Galon, the first European translator of the Nights, played so large a part in discovering the tales and popularizing them in Europe and in shaping what would come to be regarded as the canonical collection that, at some risk of hyperbole and paradox, he has been called the real author of the Nights. Which I know a lot of people might not enjoy hearing because he was a European man. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And so, and we've, like, there's a lot of talk now in this day and where we are in this moment about misappropriating um, other cultures, creations, their culture, their art. So it's very tricky to say that, but basically Galan through his work and his travels did find 
the tales and he enjoyed them and he wanted to translate them into French. And so he took pretty much whatever resources uh, he had to write the knights. But where things start getting a little tricky is that as volumes of the knights were selling, he was possibly inventing tales of his own. Oh, man. And some of the tales that he possibly was inventing, he maintains, and this is where it gets tricky, he maintains that, or, I mean, he's dead, so he can't quite maintain it anymore. Um, (laughs) But he, like, always said that he either had heard the tales that he wrote down from somebody or that he translated them. But the problem is, is that some of the tales, no one can find any evidence of them ever existing before him. Yeah. And those are called the orphan tales. Two of the most famous orphan tales are Aladdin and the Wonderful Lamp and Alibaba and the Forty Thieves. Wow. So usually when people are like, oh, I'm I'm familiar with the Thousand and One Nights because I obviously I obviously know the story of Aladdin and Alibaba and the Forty Thieves. And it's like, oh no. <laughs> <laughs> the ones that probably aren't the ones that probably are not actually part of the thousand and one nights and so those ones are called orphan tales and what gets a little confusing is that there were arab authors who wanted to make a compilation of some tales and then sell them in the middle east and they translated his french versions into arabic and so then people are like, oh, look, there are Arabic versions of Aladdin and Alibaba and the 40 Thieves. Uh, but those are after Antoine Galan. So they don't count because they were translated from his French back into Arabic. But also what is what is kind of beautiful about that is that the history of all of the tales is so convoluted and mixed together where it's like you have stories that are from China. And so who is to say (laughs) what stories truly belong inside of the nights and which ones don't belong anymore? And so the orphan tales usually are included they're called orphan tales to make sure that people aren't confused about their their origin because we kind of know what their origin is. It's suspected. Allegedly. Allegedly. <laughs> Mr. Galan and his lawyers would like you to say. Allegedly. And so, like, at this point, the Thousand and One Nights are so synonymous with like they're o- the orphan tales that they can't not be mentioned. They can't not be brought up. And so probably in the course of the year, we will cover those ones that people know the names of them. But interestingly, 
we will probably be talking about Aladdin in an episode that we are covering a similar tale found in the Grimm's Brothers. Oh, cool. So, uh, <laughs> it's like, we, I'm like, we probably will get into some of the orphan tales because they're still fun, fascinating, and like worth knowing and retelling. But we should probably, at some point, start getting into the tales. <laughs> so, Jeff and I have come up with a plan because these are nested stories. A lot of the stories are nested, which means that they're stories within stories to make it a little less confusing. What we're planning on doing is we'll have one of us retelling the tale, but when it goes into a nested tale, we're going to switch narrators so that you can kind of be aware of like when we're inside of a nested tale and when we're outside of it. So that's our plan. We'll see how that works. I'm excited for this episode because we're going to get to experiment with that format. <laughs> so before we start, so many things. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> so before I start the story, there is definitely a content warning for sex. Lots of sex and violence. Some of the sex is coercive and some of it I would categorize as rape. So just so you know, if you are listening with small children, <laughs> I'm sorry I just said all those things. But yeah, major content warning on this story. There's a lot of sex. The names in different translations have been romanized in different spellings in different ways. This is true throughout all of the tales, like pretty much like every single name. And so we're going to try to be consistent with the names of people. But if you're like, oh, I think that you're pronouncing that wrong. Yes. And <laughs> maybe. <laughs> <laughs> because even when you transcribe things like as or translate something as well as you can, one of the first things that gets warped are names, um, especially when you're going between alphabets. So that's just kind of like a heads up. And now I will begin. There's so much, there's too much buildup. There was once in the desert. Two brothers, an elder brother named Shariar and a younger named Shah Zaman. They had different kingdoms that they ruled over separately, and they hardly ever got to see each other. Bummer. So after 10 years of them ruling apart from each other, Shariar wanted to see his younger brother. And so he sent his vizier to fetch his brother. So when the vizier got to Shah Zaman, he said, your brother misses you. He wants to see you as soon as possible. And of course, the little brother said, I want to see my older brother. This sounds awesome. Make plans immediately. <laughs> so they quickly packed up and moved uh, a kind of a, a tent city right before the voyage 
just right outside of the city, so that the next morning, first thing, they could just start from outside the city. So this tent city was set up right outside of the capital, and he kissed his wife goodbye and went out into the tent city. But in the middle of the night, he remembered that he wanted to bring his brother a jewel gift. And so in the dark of the night, he went right back into the city and into the castle and into his bedroom where he kept this jewel for his brother. But in his bed, he found his wife and a black slave. Ooh. Yep. that's. <laughs> you never want to find your wife in bed with another man. So in his anger, he pulled out his sword and he struck both of them dead. He grabbed a jewel and he left. As he moved through the desert back to go see his brother, Shariar, he fell into a deep depression and despair, thinking about the betrayal that he had endured. So when Shah Zaman got to his brother, Shariar's house, he was super depressed and sad. And at first, Shariar thought he was just tired and was like, oh, you should go rest and then we will feast together. And so Shah Zaman went and rested. Then when he woke up, Shariar had a massive feast ready for them to eat and they're eating and he kept noticing that his brother looked so sad. So he was like, hey, you know what we should do? We should go hunting together. Wouldn't you love that if we went hunting? And Shah's man was like, yeah, maybe. Because <laughs> <laughs> he was still feeling super bummed out about being cheated on, right? So Shariar got everything ready for them to go on this like big hunting trip. He told everybody, hey, me and all the guys are going to be gone on this like hunting trip. We don't know when we'll be back, but we'll see you later. Okay. And of course everyone's like, yep, that all sounds great. And then Shazaman was like, you know what? I don't really feel up to it, but you should go. You've already got the stuff already. Like you should just go and like do it. And like, I'll see you when you get back. So Shariar was like, okay, like if, if that's what you want to do, that's like fine. So Shazaman was hanging out in the palace by himself when he looked down after he heard some giggling out in the garden he looked down from where he was like up on a balcony and below him he saw 20 slave women and 20 slave men but one of the women who he had taken for a slave woman was actually the wife of Shariar. So Shazaman watched as everybody in that group got undressed and had a massive orgy. Oh my gosh. <laughs> this is, I was like, there is a content warning. So they're, they're, they're feasting, they're drinking wine, and they are all naked, bathing each other and kissing and other such orgy happenings. <laughs> so this made Shazaman feel so much better. <laughs> <laughs> because he thought to himself, Oh, my wife cheated on me with just one man. 
but my brother has had it far worse. <laughs> oh, gosh. So he was feeling so much better. Um, so when his brother returned from the hunting trip, he saw that Shah Zaman was in such a great mood. And Sharyar was like, why are you in such a great mood? And Shah Zaman was like, I will tell you why I was sad, but I won't tell you why I am in such a good mood right now. And so Sharyar was like, tell me what was wrong? What was troubling you? So Shah Zaman told him about his wife cheating on him and how he had to kill the, the, his wife and the man when he left. And Shariar was like, oh, my goodness, I'm so sorry that that happened to you. That sounds awful. <laughs> It'd be funny if he was like, oh, man, I can't even imagine what I would do if I was in a similar situation. <laughs> <laughs> but no, no such dialogue exists, except that Shariar was now intrigued, like, well, what what helped you turn around? What made you feel better after, like, you know? You were so sad before. And he was like, no, I can't tell you. I can't tell you. But Shariar kept pestering him. So finally, Shah Zaman was like, okay, I'll tell you. When you left, I watched your wife in an orgy. And that made me feel better because, like, I thought it was bad that my wife had cheated on me with one guy. But your wife is, like, having these, like, massive orgies with her friend. And that made me feel better. And, of course, Shariar was devastated and he was like i don't believe you i can't believe that my wife would do that so shazaman was like well what we should do is tell everybody we're going hunting again and then we'll all leave and then you and i will sneak back here and see if it happens again so that is exactly what they did they went out to the tent city and then when it was night they snuck back into the palace and watched as once again There was this massive orgy. I don't know how they could recoup so fast. Orgies always exhaust me for weeks afterwards. I don't know. I always leave before the sexual orgy starts. (laughs) Yes. I was hoping you would say that. Such a good callback. So Sharyar is absolutely crushed and devastated. And he just goes out into the desert with his brother and is like, I just want to travel out in the wilderness alone until I can find somebody who has greater misfortune than I. And he wandered out into the desert and was never seen again. Just kidding. (laughs) That's not the end of the story. That would be impossible. So Shariar and Shazaman went out alone together into the wilderness until they saw a tree that they decided to sit and rest under, feeling sorry for themselves. Next to the tree was a body of water, and all of a sudden, a giant pillar of smoke rose out of the water, and it materialized into a djinn. And on the back of this djinn was a giant chest, a trunk, if you will. And... And the djinn set the chest down right underneath the tree as these two men scurried up into the tree because they were terrified. So the djinn bent over and he unlocked seven locks on the chest and he opened it up and he pulled out another box. And then he opened the lid of that box 
and out came a beautiful human woman. And the djinn was like, hey, I'm tired, presumably from pulling the chest out of the water. He doesn't go into it. (laughs) But he wants to take a nap. So she sits down under the tree and he lays down on her lap and he falls asleep. While she's sitting there, she looks up and she spies Shariar and Shazaman up in the tree, terrified. (laughs) And she was like, hey, you guys should come down. You should come down and have sex with me. And they were like, no, thank you, madam. (laughs) (laughs) And so she like lifts the djinn's head up and puts it on the ground. And she turns around and she's like, come down from the tree and have sex with me or I'm going to wake up this djinn and have him kill you. And they were like, um, I don't like the way that sounds. And she's like, well, you better get used to it. Oh man, let me pull it out. Cause there's like an exact quote where I'm like, woo girl. (laughs) Oh my goodness. She says, take me as hard as you can or else I'll wake him up. And I'm like, Oh, (laughs) Oh my goodness. Very forward. Very forward. This girl knew what she liked. That's what I'm saying. Um, she knew what she was into. So, <laughs> Shariar and Shazaman come down from the tree and they have sex with her. I think that is coercive sex. I think that counts as rape. Personally, myself, I don't know. It doesn't say that in the text, but that's how I read it because you can't mm. threaten somebody to have sex with you. That's That's not consent. Threat is not consent. Definitely not. I'm throwing that out there. Um, so when they were done having sex with her, she was like, okay, now I would like each of you to give me the ring, a ring off of your finger. And they were like, why? And she pulled out this giant chain out of her box that had 570 rings on it. And she told them that... On her wedding night, she was kidnapped by this djinn and he like hides her in this box, like in the water, but I guess pulls her out occasionally. Mm -hmm. But she has decided for her revenge against him, the djinn, from kidnapping her on her wedding night, that every chance she gets, she was going to cheat on him. And she cheated on him 572 times now. And after this lady had pulled out all of the rings to show the brothers and told the tale, then she quoted a poet and said, do not put your trust in women or believe their covenants. Their satisfaction and their anger both depend on their private parts. They make a false display of love, but their clothes are stuffed with treachery. Take a lesson from the tale of Joseph and you will find some of their tricks. Do you not see that your father Adam was driven out from Eden thanks to them? And we'll definitely discuss that once like the tale portion is over. But that's a little poem that she told to the brothers. And after that, they felt much better about their situations. (laughs) Because... Our spouses did not cheat on us that many times. I don't understand how this makes them feel better. It doesn't make me feel better. I don't either. Yeah, no. It does not make me feel better about the state of the world at all. (laughs) This isn't comforting me. 
And it must not have made them feel that much better because of things that will happen next. So they were like, this, this makes us feel better. We can, we can face another day. So they decided to pack up their stuff and get out of there as quickly as possible <laughs> before that djinn woke up. So they got back to the city and Sharyar was feeling in such a good mood that he went into his house and slaughtered everybody. Who his wife and all the people that were involved in the orgies. Oh man. And then Sharyar decided that he never wanted to be cheated on by another woman in his life. So what he decided to do is that he would marry a woman every night. And in the morning after sleeping with her, he would murder her. That way, no woman could ever cheat on him again. And this is usually the part of the story where people do know, like, the framed part of the story. But they usually don't know his, like, full... Yeah, the backstory. Backstory there. So, Sharyar went to his vizier and he was like, this is what I want you to do. I want you to go and find me a bride, bring her to me, and we'll go from there. So, the vizier went out, found a bride... Brought her to Sharyar. He married her. He slept with her. And then in the morning, she was put to death. And the Vizier was like, oh, oh. <laughs> we don't like this. This isn't great. But this went on for a very, very long time. And as it went on, the families that lived inside of this city deserted it. They were terrified for their daughter's lives, and so they all quickly left until the vizier could not find a woman to give to Shariar to be his wife. All that was left were his two daughters. Oh, no. So he had an older daughter named Shaharazad. And it says Shahrazad had read books and histories, accounts of past kings, and stories of earlier people, having collected. It was said a thousand volumes of these covering peoples, kings, and poets. And so she went to her father and she said, if you have no one else to give the king, give him me. And her dad was not thrilled with that idea. So she told her father Father, marry me to this man. Either I shall live or else I shall be a ransom for the children of the Muslims and save them from him. Which some people have claimed that that language leads people to believe she had two plans. She was either going to tell the tales to trick him mm -hmm. or she was planning on murdering him. That's oh, how man. some people like read that is that yeah. she was like... Either I shall live or else I shall be a ransom for the children of the Muslims and save them from him. So she was going to she was planning on either killing him or sacrificing herself. There is like a plan there. And her father was like, no, you're not to risk your life. And he said, I'm afraid that you may experience what happened to the donkey and the bull with the merchant. And she asked, what was that, father? What happened to the bull and the donkey? And so he starts off this tale by saying, you must know, my daughter, because you've got all of them thousand books, that there was a merchant who had a ton of money and a ton of animals. And on top of all that, he'd been given power by God, a knowledge of languages, 
of animals, beasts and birds of all kinds. And he lived in the country and he had a house and he had a donkey and a bull. And one day the bull went to the donkey's quarters and found that they'd been like really well taken care of. They were swept out. They were sprinkled with water. There was this nice big bowl of barley that the donkey could eat and straw in his trough and all this stuff. And the donkey was like sitting there relaxing, having a good time. And, you know, once in a while, the master would take him out and ride him on an errand or whatever, but then he'd be taken back and put in this like really nice setup that he had while the bull had to like work hard in the fields all day long. So one day the merchant heard the bull say to the donkey, he's like, hey, great job, donkey. I'm out there tired while you're sitting here at ease eating your barley. He's like, yeah, maybe he takes you out, but I'm always out there, you know, if I'm not out there plowing in the field, I'm grinding the corn and doing all this stuff. And the donkey's like, hey, okay, I feel bad for you, man. So here's what you got to do. When they put that yoke on you to make you do all that work and they want to take you out into the fields, just don't stand up. Even if they start coming and beating you to get you to go, don't stand up. Or if you do like stand up and just sit back down right after And then when they bring you food to eat, pretend to be sick and don't eat them. And, you know, after a couple of days of this, they'll give you a rest. All right. And so the next day, the herdsman goes out and he brings the bull the dinner. And he like ate the bull only ate a little bit and then didn't do anything else. And then when the guy came back to take him out to do the plowing, he found the bull acting all sick and sad. And he's like, oh, this is why he couldn't work yesterday. And so he went back to the merchant And told him, he's like, hey, you know, master, this bull's not doing well. He's not eating his food and it's like so weak he can't really do anything. And so the merchant's like, okay, you know, the bull must be sick. Go and take the donkey to do all the plowing all day in his place. And so the donkey gets taken out and does all the work that the bull had to do. And so the donkey comes back that evening having been used for all the plowing all day. And the bull was like so grateful. He's like, thank you so much for your great advice. You know, I've got a day's rest and it was so wonderful. And the donkey, who was, quote, filled with the bitterest regret, (laughs) didn't say a word to that bull. And then the next morning, the herdsman came out and took the donkey out again to plow until evening. And then when the donkey got back, like his neck had been so rubbed raw by the yoke and he was like half dead with how, you know, tired he was. He was going from living this life of laziness and luxury eating barley all day to like working really hard all day and the donkey said to the bull he's like man i was sitting here at ease but i wasn't able to mind my own business and i went and tried to give you some advice and then like this is how i get repaid for it but then he goes on and says but i've got some more advice to give to you i heard our master saying that if you don't get up if you don't recover from being sick then he's going to take you to the butcher to be slaughtered and he's going to cut your hide into little pieces. So I'm, I'm really scared for you. I think you should get over it and go back to work. And so when the bull heard this, he's like, oh, okay, thank you, thank you. Yeah, yeah, I'll go out tomorrow. And so that night, the bull finishes up all his food. And while all this was going on, the merchant was listening to what the animals were talking about. So he knew what was going on because he could understand the language of animals. And so the next morning, he and his wife were sitting out there as the herdsman arrived to take the bull out. And when the bull saw his master, he like, it says he flourished his tail, farted and galloped off. (laughs) And 
the merchant thought that this was so funny that he just collapsed on the floor laughing. Which, I mean, I think the farting was enough to do that for all of us. Because it's, I mean, like, what's also funny, like, not just the fart, but just, like, how these two animals had tried to, like, just get out of out of doing hard work. It was just, like, amusing of, like, just how they were like, oh, we'll get out of doing work this way. And then they're like, just kidding. So he was, like, watching them play off of each other. Yeah. Yeah. So he thinks this is so funny and he's collapses on the floor laughing and his wife is like, why are you laughing? And so the merchant's like, I was laughing because it's something that's secret that I saw and I, you know, I heard, but I can't tell you or else I'm going to die. And so his wife's like, well, even if you do die, you have to tell me, like, I have to know. I can't stand the fact that you're laughing and I don't understand. Let me in on the joke, even if it means you're going to die. But he's just keeps saying, it's like, no, no, I can't. I, like, I'm going to die. If I tell you and the wife was like, you were laughing at me, weren't you? And so she kept going on and on until she finally convinces him. She was so insecure. Yeah. She's like, I need to know that you weren't laughing at me. It's like, what did you do? What did you think he was laughing at? But and she also finally. Did she secretly, she farted. <laughs> but so she finally wears the merchant down. And so he agrees to tell her. But he's so sad, like he calls for his children to come. He calls for some notaries to come to give his like will and his final instructions for his burial and all that stuff so that he can tell his wife the secret and then die. Which like, honestly, as the family, they must have been looking at that being like, (laughs) this guy is so over the top. He's like, I have to write my will because like once I tell your mom this thing, I'm just going to drop down dead. They're like, wow, drama. (laughs) Like once guy. I tell you why this joke, once I tell her why this joke was so funny, I'm going to die. <laughs> They're like, okay, dad. <laughs> okay, dad. So, th- and this is like an interesting fact too, is like, it says he had a deep love for her, which is one of the reasons why he wanted to tell her and make her happy. She being his cousin and the mother of his children. While he himself was 120 years old. It's like, oh, dang, okay, Leah, if I were 120 years old, I'd be pretty ready for death, too, I guess. Yeah, he'd already lived a long enough life. He's fine. (laughs) So once all of his family and neighbors were gathered together, he explained he had something to say, but he can't tell this secret to anyone or else he would die. So everyone there was like, what? If he tells someone this secret, he's going to die. Like, why are you pestering this poor guy so much if you're going to kill him? And so everyone is kind of like ganging up on this wife saying like, no, don't make him tell you this thing. That's not fair. And, you know, they're kind of like guilting her about like, you're going to be the cause of the death of the father of your children. Like, what kind of person are you? And she said to this, she's like, I'm not going to stop until he tells me and then I'll let him die. And so the others are just like completely left silent at that, speechless. And so when this family realizes that the dad is serious and that the wife even more so is serious that she's going to let her husband die just so that she can know what was so funny. He goes and he goes to the pyre and he performs like his ritual ablations, kind of like his last rites or whatever. But the merchant also had a rooster and 50 hens and a dog. And he heard the dog yelling to the rooster and saying like, Oh yeah, you may be happy here, but our master's about to die. And then the rooster's like, wait, 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 our master's about to die? What, what is going on? What happened? 
So the dog tells him the whole story, and the rooster's like, oh, my gosh, he must be stupid. He's like, I have 50 wives, and I keep them all contented at peace, and he only has one, and he can't keep her in order? He's like, why doesn't he just go get some mulberry twigs, take her into a room, and beat her until she either dies or changes her mind and doesn't ask him again? And so at this point, the vizier, who's telling this story to his daughter, tells her, I'll treat you just like this man treated his wife. And then she asked, why, what did he do? And so he continues and he says, when he heard what the rooster said to the dog, he apparently decided, I'm going to take that rooster's advice. So he cut some mulberry twigs, hid them in a room, and he took his wife and he's like, okay, wife, come on, come in here. And I'm going to talk to you in here. And then I'm going to die with nobody watching. Just come on in. Nothing suspicious at all is happening. (laughs) And so she goes in with him, prepared to hear this really funny joke worth killing her husband over. And (laughs) he locks the door and he starts beating her with these mulberry twigs until she faints. (laughs) And she's like, I take it all back. I take it all back. And then she kisses his hands and feet. And after she decided that she didn't want to hear this anymore, the husband and the wife went back out neither of them dead to the delight of their family and everyone else there. And they lived (laughs) in the happiest of circumstances until their deaths. (laughs) Oh, oh, I, I, I love just how wildly sexist some of the stories are. And I know that sounds like counterintuitive because I'm like, I'm not pro beating your wife. Just like the story of that. They're like, yeah. And so he went, Beat his wife for being dumb. So thank you for that. Uh, it's like, so, and he couldn't have just refused to tell her. You know what I mean? Like he's like beat her into stopping asking. It was so. It was such a crazy turn. It was because it went from him being like, "All right, I'm prepared to die," and then hearing like the animals making fun of him, he was like, "Oh, you, you know what? No, I should just hit my wife." <laughs> and then apparently, like the vizier's like, "You know what I'm going to do? I'm basically." It sounds like the vizier's threatening. Like I'm just going to beat you. Until you change your mind about this. Yes, because basically what he was saying there was like, Shahrazad, if you're not going to listen to me saying that this is a bad idea and don't do it, then I'm just going to beat the crap out of you. So it says Shahrazad listened to what her father had said, but she still insisted on her plan. And what's funny is the way that the translator phrased it next in my copy, it says, so he decked her. Out and took her to King Sharyar. Because to deck somebody is to punch them, but also to deck them out is to like. Like get them dressed up all fancy. Exactly. And so for a second, it had me like a little bit fooled because she's like, she insisted on her plan, so he decked her. But no, (laughs) she was like standing by her plan. She was like, no, I, I have a good plan. You need to trust me. And he, even though he had just told that extremely sexist story, decides to trust his daughter because he really had nowhere else to go. So he gets Shahrazad dressed up and ready for her wedding night. And before she reaches the king, she meets with her sister, whose name is Dunyazad. So Dunyazad is a little sister. And Shahrazad says to her, when I go to the king, I will send for you and you have to come And when you see that the king is done with what he wants from me, which is like when he's done having sex with me, I need you to say 
Tell me a story, sister, so as to pass the waking part of the night. I shall then tell you a tale that, God willing, will save us. So Shahrazad was taken by her father to the king. They were married. And right after they were married and King Shariar was taking her to the wedding chamber, she started to cry. And he tenderly, surprisingly, asked her what was wrong when it's like, why do you think this woman is crying? (laughs) (laughs) You've been murdering every single woman you marry for the last who knows how long. Yeah, like why in the world? She starts crying. He's like, why? What's wrong with you? (laughs) But she said, I have a young sister and I want to say goodbye to her. And so the king, annoyed, called for Dunizad to come to the room. So she hugged Shahrazad, and then it says she took her seat beneath the bed while the king got up and deflowered her sister. Which, that would be very awkward, personally, for me, all as well. Yes. Um, So not, not a situation I would enjoy being in. But when it was clear that Shariar was done with what he wanted for her sister, Dunyazad said, tell me a story, sister, so as to pass the waking part of the night. And Shahrazad asked the king if that would be okay with him. And he rolled over and gave permission, but he kept one ear listening. Mm. Mm. and that is where we're ending which is i know shocking for right now because (laughs) we're not getting into any of the thousand one nights it's like night one just kidding now we're story's over so with the way that the story is nested and set up is called a ransom tale and the next time when we talk about on the Thousand and One Nights is going to be about ransom tales that are inside of this ransom tale. Whoa. Ransom tale-ception. So meta. So there are lots of ransom tales throughout histories and throughout different cultures of this kind of setup of like, hey, <laughs> what can I do to persuade somebody not to like kill me and either using the tales to stall for time Mm -hmm. or as like a payment to pay one's life back it gets employed like in different ways and we'll see some of those ways next time we talk about it but yeah i just wanted to let people know that this framed narrative is called a ransom tale and um i'm excited to get into it yeah that's cool and there's a lot to this that I don't remember from my previous encounters with this. Like I definitely got one of those like, Hey, we're going to censor some of this stuff out versions because it didn't tell the whole story. It just kind of had talked about how, you know, the King had been wronged by his wife and he, you know, it like, it didn't tell the whole story as far as I remember. It starts basically like, Hey, he'd been wronged by his wife and he never wanted to be cheated on again. So this is what he did. He married a different woman every night and killed him in the morning. And that's where everything starts. Yeah, there's usually very little um, backstory that kind of goes into that, which makes sense, especially because if you are reading this story to a child or a version of it that is for a child, of course they're going to take out the The orgies. orgies. 
And the 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 lady with the gin yeah. that like forces them to like have sex and give the rings and is like here like uh women are garbage. Like Yeah, the story's starting like, off being like, hey, guess what? We are definitely rated R, if not <laughs> NC seventeen. Seriously, because it's like there's going to be sex and violence throughout. Um, cause it is like, it starts off with a guy that you are normally, you don't even ever hear about the younger brother yeah. getting cheated on and him killing his wife and the man that his, uh, wife was sleeping with. And you never hear about that. And you normally don't hear about like all of that orgy part, but it sets up this idea of women are all devious yeah women are all like just planning on being like unfaithful and evil because we have the examples of the first wife of the younger brother you have sharyar's wife and all of the people who like all the ladies basically who are involved in that orgy but mostly like his wife yeah but then you have the jinn who even the jinn who is like you know supposed to be this kind of like powerful entity he also can't get the woman under his like power to quit cheating on him yeah. and, to like behave herself. And even like the woman in the story behave herself in quotes. Yeah. Even the woman in the story within the story that the father tells is like, I mean, they end up living happily, but it's like, she is kind of unreasonable in asking her husband to like tell this thing that's going to get him to die which again it's like it never really explains why he will die if he tells this thing which is kind of confusing yeah. but but besides that you know it's like she's asking something unreasonable and he beats her into submission and then they live happily ever after it's like so she's not even uh, yeah. you know like a, a yeah even that example that is like removed away from shariar yeah it's still like a a, a story where this woman is like basically shown to be like a nag yeah. who's willing to have her husband die so that her curiosity can uh, be sated. Yeah. So it's like, man. And then, like you said, too, it's really beaten over the head with that poem that the 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 woman yes. with the shit with the keys with the rings reads where she's like this is a poem about how women suck and i'm one of them yeah. but i suck and so all women suck and it's just our nature to be horrible and it's like oh my gosh yeah. she's like i'm here to tell you that like you can't trust women any promises that we make you we're completely ruled by our like genitalia is basically like what she says yeah. we show false love but what's interesting to me, like in that poem, too, is that in two different parts in there where she says, take a lesson from the tale of Joseph and you will find some of their tricks. So the story of Joseph, she's making reference to the story of Joseph of Egypt, where a woman whose name you don't find out in the Bible, they call her Potiphar's wife. Yeah. Because she's the wife of this guy named Potiphar, who Joseph is working for. But... She wants to sleep with Joseph and Joseph says no because he doesn't want to have sex with his boss's wife. And so then what she does is she grabs his clothes so that when she like rips the clothes off yeah, of Joseph. Yeah, like as he's running away. 
as he's running away and she keeps a hold of them so that when Potiphar comes home, he finds this guy's clothes and he's like, what happened? And she's like, oh, he attacked me and tried to get at my lady bits. And Joseph gets thrown into prison. And that story is in the Bible and it has, there's a lot to that story. If people want to find out the ending, if they don't know it already, they can watch Joseph in the technical. I was going to say the same thing. (laughs) Dang it. (laughs) Uh, uh, but you can i mean that does pretty faithfully tell the story of of what happens yes joseph and the technicolor dream coat um yeah also the story is found in the bible um (laughs) people don't want to watch a musical why wouldn't they want to watch a musical? i don't know and the bible is commonly found in the drawer next to the bed at whatever hotel you're staying at (laughs) so and then the next the next Bible story she references is Adam and Do you Eve. not see that your yeah, exactly, that your father Adam was driven out from Eden thanks to them, thanks to women. And of course, that's a mythological story in the Bible also about Adam and Eve were the first people on earth and God told them not to eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Yeah. And Satan as a snake comes into the garden and tells Eve to eat the apple, even though she was told not to. And she bites into the apple. So she gets Adam to eat the apple as well. I say apple. It's not specified what it is in the it's Bible. It's the fruit of the tree. Of, but a lot of depictions yes, are the, apples. the fruit of the tree. Yeah, a lot of them are apple. And so then they get kicked out of this paradise that Eden was because this woman... <laughs> like was tricked and then got her and then tricked her husband into like eating the fruit. And that's why everyone in the world is miserable because of women. Yeah. Which Um, is so it like sets up this story being like, wow, this story is very, very anti woman, but I don't think that's true. I think from the section that we are talking about, yes, 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 it is. But the whole point is to show why this King is such a piece of garbage and why he thinks this way. But then we get Scheherazade, who actually is a woman, a woman. Well, here's the thing. So I was going to say like she's yeah, because she's dictating which stories get told. Yeah. So she does get to choose. Um, I actually have a quote from Stranger Magic. And it says it is Scheherazade's role in the nights to clear this anger and remove the rationale for the men's hatred. Her stories will gradually introduce maltreated wives subjugated daughters, faithful female lovers, clever and courageous slave girls, courageous loving mothers, intelligent teachers, loyal sisters, and devoted Paris or fairies in an increasingly shining procession of women. And so it is, we've started off the tales very much showing where the king sits on how he views women and how he got to that point. Of where he of how he views women. Yeah. And then throughout the tales, we're going to meet women of lots of different roles and stations in life. I mean, some of them that we have met before when we did Hassan of Basra, there are a lot of women in that yeah. story who are some of them good, some of them very, very bad. And it basically just shows a wide range of women. And actually Marina Warner also says in Stranger Magic, 
These were stories in which women mattered, and they consequently mattered and appealed to women, a quality which caused some trouble in their standing as literature. Mm. These were these stories were retold a lot by women. Yeah. Because they show women in diverse roles. Yeah. And then it's interesting because they also were considered kind of frivolous garbage, the same way that fairy tales in Europe were considered frivolous garbage because they were being told by women. And so it's interesting to view it from the lens of feminism. Like, is this like, where does this story sit on like how it treats women or how it views women, how it um, like displays women? Because it's going to show us a range. And even this story that we just told, yeah, we just went through the women that like, have caused the king to feel the way that he feels. But also Shahrazad and Dunizad, these are two women who are sisters, who are women helping women. Yeah. And Shahrazad is like self-sacrificing for her father so that he doesn't get put to death for not being able to find a woman. And sacrificing for her sister so that the sister doesn't have to go and be taken to the king. And for any other woman that comes. And she's trying to then put a stop to this happening so she can save many more women going forward. So she is a very like good, strong example of a, of a good woman who is doing good things. Yeah. She's a very strong female character. So to kind of wrap things up for this episode, I want to go back to your question from the beginning of the episode, Jeff, when you asked like how, how old are these tales? Like what, what, like time frame are we talking about? And I gave you like a reference to like the frame narrative being mentioned at about 800 AD. But to illustrate what I was talking about, where it's like individual tales you have to look at, I have uh, a quote from the Arabian Nights, a companion. To begin where some scholars believe all great stories began, in India, the Jakarta is a Pali collection of 547 fables, stories, romances, maxims, and legends that purportedly relate to previous incarnations of the Buddha. While it survives in a 5th century version in Pali, it is probably much older. So we're talking 5th century. And the Jakarta is, the tales in it are dated between 300 BC and 400 AD. Wow. And it says, the tale of the bull and the ass and the linked tale of the merchant and his wife, in which a man knows the language of the beasts and takes warning from their conversations not to reveal the secret of his knowledge, are found in the Jakarta and in the frame story of the knights. Oh, my gosh, that's crazy. So when it goes to how old are these tales individually? Some of them thousands of years old. And it's, you know, going back to maybe like Old Testament era, like time frame, some earlier than that. But it really is. Each tale has a pedigree that's being like traced and studied because they have these tales are from all over. And what's incredible is it's often described as a polyvocal anthology of world myths, fables, and fairy tales because they're from all over. That's an example of one that's like from India. We'll read more that come from China. Some of them, they're they're like, you know, some of these probably were birthed and created 
in the Middle East, but so many traveled and were dispersed. And what a lot of scholars believe is that in the Middle East, because so many religions crisscross there. Yeah. And we know that inside of this book, there are references to biblical materials, because I just <laughs> told you. Even the frame story is associated with the story of Esther, who was a woman in the Old Testament, who was willing to sacrifice herself to save her Jewish people. You know, there are all these religious references inside of the tales because the Middle East was the center where pilgrims and traders and crusaders and everybody was crossing back and forth across that landmass. And they were carrying their stories with them and taking them out and bringing them back in and taking them out and bringing back in. And so you end up with The Thousand and One Nights, which is just a massive collection of everybody's greatest stuff. Thank you for listening to The Fairy Tellers. If you are enjoying what we're doing, please support us by leaving us a review or share us with your friends. Special thanks to Andrew Forey for our music and Clarice Inch for our artwork. If you are a dreamer, come in. If you are a dreamer, a wisher, a liar, a hoper, a prayer, a magic bean buyer. If you're a pretender, come sit by my fire, for we have some flax golden tails to spin. Come in, come in. Invitation by Shel Silverstein. Should I say sip, sip on some tea? No. Yeah, you can say sip and sip some tea. If you can Life. sip some, sip some, sip some tea. I like pour some tea because it sounds like it's like, mm, sit back. We're about to spill Light your some lamp, tea. Pour some tea. Light your lamp, you pour some tea while we tell you a thing. Mm.